0: Welcome back to Sober Girl Podcast. Today I have Kim with me. All right, Kim, welcome to the show. <laughs> and what was your drug of choice?
1: Um, anything. You know, anything that took me out of the norm. Um, what really, really got me at the end was alcohol and methamphetamine.
0: When did you first start to use, like your first time, could be any time, any age. When was that first time for you?
1: One of those things, um, the first time that I ever had a sip of alcohol, I can remember being like very young. Um, My parents, we had a houseboat in California and my parents were kind of hippie, kind of not. (laughs) So We were always out, and I can remember my dad having beers, and I would eat potato chips with him and then drink sips of his beer, and it was, like, the best tasting thing ever. Something about the carbonation and the salt, and it was just, it was great. So that was the first time, I mean, very young, that I had a sip of alcohol.
0: But- I feel like sometimes too within and it depends on our generation. So I'm I think you're just a couple years older than me. So I'm 34. So in my generation, like that was acceptable for your parents mm-hmm. to do that. I want to make that known. Today that's not, but back then that was normal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um and like the first time I ever really got drunk, you know, there were sips of alcohol here and there, but my parents had a, a party at Christmas and my brothers were there. I had two older brothers one's seven years older than me and one's 10 years older. And it was like the one that was seven years older than me, he poured, do you remember avalanche back in the day? It was like a blue bottle with like crystals in it. I was like, this is gorgeous, (laughs) you know? And it was so (laughs) visually pleasing to me. Well, I can remember he poured it into a scotch glass thinking that I was going to take a sip. I downed the whole thing. And so I was maybe 10, eight, between eight and 10. And so that was my first drunk that I can remember just being like, whoa.
0: Now, do you remember how that made you feel? Were you like constantly chasing that feeling after that? Did you feel that it like made you escape in some way? Did you feel, is there anything you felt or you can remember at that age
1: that you felt? Um, I don't really remember much. What I do remember is, you know, we used to live in bigger houses. My dad was a contractor. So he'd build a house every two years. We'd move constantly. And there was a staircase. And the one thing that sticks out to me is I was walking down the stair. I had my hand on a wall and the staircase. And I just remember being so dizzy and woozy. Obviously, I was intoxicated. But And then I went to bed. That's all I remember. I don't really think it woke anything up in me yet. That progressed. Um, You know, my parents, they were... They were very like they had friends all the time. They entertained. They had big bars, and I had a friend that lived up the hill, so we used to walk up and down this huge hill to hang out with each other. And I can remember being in say middle school, and I'd fill up a water bottle with you know whatever kind of liquor I I probably mixed them at that point because I had no idea yeah. what I was doing, but I can remember taking a crayon And I would mark on the side of the bottle where the alcohol level was, and I would fill it up with water. Now, mind you, I was probably like 12, 13. So that sort of mindset was already instilled in me. Like I'm going to hide this. I don't want to get caught, you know? So we would just drink and those kind of things. And it was really, um, I don't know, harmless, but we started early. Until, you know, my friend drank too much and we were young and she had her stomach pumped very young.
0: Mm. I had a sibling, a sibling of mine that happened to him when he was in college. Yeah. Yeah. It's a serious situation. So now explain to us what your childhood was like. Did you have a normal, really happy childhood? You said your parents hosted a lot. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah.
1: Um, my childhood was normal, you know, as far as normal is, you know, Um, um, My mom came from a family of abuse. And so my dad didn't, but I think my mom really broke the cycle then. Um, but growing up, I had two older brothers. Now I am a type one diabetic. So that's my like primary disease right there. Um, I've been insulin dependent since I was 22 months old. So I was like the sheltered, um, take care of child all the time. Cause my disease was like my mom's disease and, you know, everything was, was given to me, done for me, things like that. Um, and there really was no abuse. There really wasn't, um, I can't really think of a time where it was like, yep, this is what made me want to disassociate or disconnect mm-hmm. because there wasn't anything like that. I got to the point where I just liked being physically there, I guess, but mentally somewhere else. And drugs and alcohol gave that to me.
0: Do you, or when can you realize in your story where it like switched for you and it was becoming, it, your life was becoming unmanageable and you had to have it? Like, when did that happen? How did you, you mentioned um, before drugs, how did that also come into with the alcohol?
1: Right. So, alcohol, you know, going into high school, it's, it's what kids did. It's really what you did. And I'm sure they do it now, but dear Lord, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, the, the alcohol was there. Um, and then I really got into smoking pot, really got into it. I mean, it was every single day and we were, you know, selling bags of weed in sophomore year of high school. And that really, really changed for me. Um, so weed was an all the time thing and that was kind of like a constant, but, um, I can remember, you know, dabbling with mushrooms, you know, psilocybin, LSD, um, ecstasy, all those things, and then I found cocaine, and that was probably junior year of high school, and I loved it. I loved feeling euphoric, but also energy, and I think that has to do with um, undiagnosed ADHD, so I mean, I just got diagnosed with ADHD probably two years ago. I'm like, wow, this makes so much sense. As yeah. to why I sought out uppers, if you will. Um, and then also, you know, having autoimmune issues. So I always felt like sluggish all the time. And so uppers gave me that like, oh! <laughs> so that really became, um, I want to say junior year of high school was like where it really started happening. Yeah.
0: And then, um, now, did that do anything with the diabetes too, like together where like, I don't know a lot about, I know alcohol obviously has a ton of sugar, mm-hmm. but when you're mixing in like different kind of drugs like that, is it, yeah. does that like raise your levels up and were your levels kind of out of whack or did that kind of like, you just kind of stayed stabilized?
1: You know, um, I'm sure it did, but I like now I have an insulin pump. So I have a little thing on my arm that tells me what my blood sugar is. It tells me what my pump is. My pump gives me the insulin back in the day. I didn't want to have anyone know I was a diabetic. I was like too vain. <laughs> so I was manually, you know, giving myself insulin shots and testing my blood sugar. And I, I hardly ever did it because I just didn't care. Yeah. You know, I didn't yeah, care about health. Yeah, you
0: just get that. Yeah, so now explain to us kind of the progression, right? You're doing these things. It's just it's seems normal to you and you're going through life like what were your relationships like? Would you were you holding jobs down? When did it get to that point where you were like okay, this is unmanageable. What am I doing? Yeah.
1: Um so I was born and raised in Reno, Nevada, and it, when you think of Nevada, you think of Vegas and it's like 24-hour town, flashy nightlife. Well, Reno is the same. It's just on like a smaller scale. So I started working in the nightclub scene, if you will. Um, when I was like probably 17, I would check coats in. And it was just, it did something to me. Like it was um, flashy. It looked sexy. It was like all the things, the music, the people, the dancing, um, all of it it was very attractive to me. So it started to progress. Um, you know, I'd be going out all the time. I hardly went to school. I barely graduated high school and, um, I was always seeking out, you know, DJs and things like that. It was just the scene back then. It was like the early rave scene, if you will, (laughs) in early 2000. So that was, um, that's how that started. And then I got into, um, adult entertainment so I was an exotic dancer (laughs) basically I was a stripper yeah so So again it kind of fed into that like um the nightlife the flash the glitz and the glam and it provided me instant money yeah and so that really fed into my addiction and as you know that sort of scene like drugs and alcohol run rampant and I loved every minute of it
0: yeah and that type of scene for sure it's like they go hand in hand. I was in the mm-hmm. restaurant business and so many people used. And I, at the time I was just so oblivious because it's before my addiction kicked off. And I just, I like, I knew what was happening and like random guys would go to jail and then come back. But yeah. like, I didn't really put, cause I was in that part of it. I, I just kind of just put that out of sight, out of mind. So now you're 17, 18, you start doing this. So no college, just this is what you're doing. This is your source of income and you're literally yeah. partying working and then that's what your life is like.
1: And that was it. That was it. Um, you know, I try to hold down normal jobs, like working for an insurance agency, but I would be so strung out on Coke that it was just, it was impossible, you know? And again, the exotic dancer lifestyle <laughs> yeah. allowed yeah. me to do that because you could just, you could do it everywhere.
0: Yeah. How long did this last where you were an exotic dancer?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Quote, unquote.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it started when I was 18. And uh, yeah, about 18. And then it went until I was 30. So I, I danced on, on and off from then. Now, mind you, I live in Oregon now, and that's a huge part of it because rehabs were involved. <laughs> yeah. So, um. Yeah. About over 10 years.
0: So during this 10 year time, did you just continuously use, or did you, like you said, you mentioned rehab, did you do rehabs like in between there?
1: Yeah. So I, um, whenever I tell my story, I always say like the amount of times that I went to rehab, I could have gone to like Yale or Harvard (laughs) because it just costs so much money, especially Mm -hmm. back then. Like your parents are paying for it out of pocket. And that's really where my college fund went, was to my rehab. So um, I think the first rehab I went to, I actually overdosed uh, on cocaine, which is really kind of hard to do. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, you know, my diabetes and I was sick and staying up for days and not eating and drinking. Like, as you mentioned, you know, the alcohol, it does raise your blood sugar. Well, that was like my main source of caloric intake at that time. So I was like a walking skeleton. Um. But, you know, rehabs, I can, I can remember five of them. And a majority of them were in Nevada. You know, I, I dabble around here and there. But then um, I came up to Oregon because I was like, I can't go to rehab in Reno. I'll know everybody there. So here I came to Oregon the first time <clears throat> and I did a 21 day program that was for the cocaine. And that is where I learned about methamphetamine. And I don't know. Like looking back at it, my roommate was like absolutely twacked out of her mind. Like had sores everywhere. And I was like, what is this? What is going on? And I don't think I thought of it like right then, like, oh, this drug equals this. I was like, what is that? And it it just sparked the curiosity in me. So, you know, I tried um, I tried meth like probably a year later, and it was just I was off to the races
0: your level of basically, okay, I'm going to go all in with this. Were you kind of like, okay, someone's forcing me to do this or, oh, I I need to do this for my parents or how, where was that at for you for those?
1: Um, you know, the first times it was just like, yes, I did it for my parents and I wanted to get clean, but I still never like really realized the depth of my addiction. And like, you know, for a while I thought, oh, I just have a drug problem. I'm fine with alcohol, but later on, I really realized that alcohol was the, the starting point of it. Mm-hmm. Cause I can't just have like half a beer, you know, I have to have the whole thing. I obsess on it. And then once I reach that, I cross that invisible line. Like, I don't know where it is, but it's like, huh, a bag would sound like a good idea. Yeah. You know? So, so it really, um, I think I just got so broken down each time that I did go into rehab, I was like, I have nothing left. I have nowhere to go, nothing to do. I got to start over. But that didn't really happen.
0: So you went to the rehabs and then after these rehabs, would you just automatically go back like you really weren't taking time to learn what they were trying to teach you and then kind of live this sober lifestyle? Or did you have some like stints where you were sober in those times? No no yeah you just went right back you know yeah. I
1: just went right back out because it was like okay I've heard this you know um it was self-will it was ego like I've got this I don't need anyone else I've listened to what you have to tell me I understand but there was no really like after care no program set in place yeah. maybe there was I just didn't really give a shit yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I you know I can remember going to meetings and looking for guys there you know like who am I gonna lure in, per se, Yeah. And I can bring into that lifestyle with me, because I just, I wasn't ready.
0: Was there that kind of a relationship where it was, there was, like, a disconnect between your family and yourself?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, towards the end, it was, I mean, they always held out hope for me that I was going to get better, and they really tried to do what they could, because that's all they knew at the time. That's all that it was, and it was like, okay, well, Kim's sick, or Um, Kim is has nowhere to live, or she got in a fight with her, whatever it was at the time, you know, let's bring her in so she can get her stuff together. But I had no intention of doing so, you know, like you said, it was, I never really stole from my parents. I mean, way back in the day, you know, to get a pager, I think I stole some money from my dad back in the day, but I didn't I respected my parents, I did, Um, and I never stole from them, I never had parties, because my addiction and my disease was just mine, and I really, what my parents thought of me, I valued, but I knew that they knew I was addicted, so it was like, I'm going to completely remove myself, until it got really bad, and they would try to help me, and just that vicious cycle.
0: So, they, they stood by you for the whole time?
1: Um, towards the end. Towards the end. end. Yeah. So, um, towards the very end in 2000, I want to say 2011. So mind you, I came up to Oregon. This is a pretty pivotal point. I came up to Oregon in 2005 for a rehab stint. I did 90 days in intensive treatment. So I met my now husband there and that is not what you do. Anyone who's listening, please do not do the 13th step in there where you're finding your love of your life. It's like shopping, you know, in a, in a used car lot, right? A Broken down car lot. Like, please do not do that. But again, like I had no concept and I was like, Oh, so I met my husband at the time and well, he's still my husband. And uh, we started a life up here in Oregon and he had he committed a crime, and up here in, in Oregon, it's called a Measure 11. So that is where you do a certain crime, and you do a certain amount of time. No ifs, ands, or buts. And it's normally a person-on-person crime. So, the, you know, whatever happened. Um, so he wound up getting convicted, and um, he went away to jail. And that's where I decided I'm going to go back to Reno. So I went back to Reno to live with my family, and I was like, you know what the problem is? It's the gender, right? Because it couldn't be me. Like I had to switch genders. So I decided to go the lesbian route or try. It wasn't really my thing, but I was like, it's the gender. So that started a whole nother thing in itself. But, um, that was my first rehab. Well, second rehab here in Oregon, but then in 2011, uh, Jason is my husband's name. He was getting out. So he had done his five years, 10 months in prison. And we stayed in contact. And he was like, okay, like, let's, let's do this. And he's such an amazing man. Like, he just celebrated 17 years of sobriety. Ooh, so he's incredible. Awesome. He stayed sober the entire time he was in prison. So 2011 came around. My dad and I were legit, like, physically fighting. Because I was just tearing my mom and my dad apart. And I can remember my dad packed my little Honda Accord with everything I had, threw it in black trash bags and threw it in the car, gave me $200 at the time. And that was it. He's like, you can either go spend it on drugs or you can get your ass up to Oregon. And so that's that's what I did. I drove for 11 hours to get up to Oregon and, um, I met up with Jason and (sighs) stayed in, um, where was it? Like an Oxford house. And it's just, now mind you, I didn't get sober till 2014. So him and I, you know, I I tried using, tried getting clean, went back into the strip club scene up here and it just like, it continued. And breaking point for me, um, was where he was on probation and I was legit cuckoo for like, I was on another planet. This time. Now, mind you, this is where I really realized that how much my diabetes played into my addiction at the time because I hadn't eaten. I wasn't drinking water. So I was malnourished, dehydrated, and I was just like no sleep for like five, six days. And Jason comes home and I was sitting at the kitchen table and I had no clothes on talking to myself. And he's like, What is going on? Like, (laughs) I know that. And I'm like, No, I'm fine. You know? So he told me at that point, he's like, you have got to get out of here. I'm not willing. And I had drugs in the house at the time. He's like, if my probation officer comes here and finds drugs, I'm going to go back to prison. Yep. And so that is when, so yes, my parents had just washed their hands of me. I mean, I was grown at this point. So, and then yeah. I, I was losing Jason at the same time. And that's where, um. I had this moment of clarity in 2014. So it was like January 31st, and um, he's like, I packed all my stuff in my black trash bags again, you know, because yeah. that's all that I had, and I was getting ready to leave because um, I, I still wanted to do drugs. I was still strung out necessarily, and mind you, like alcohol was always there, you know, but it's where the drugs took me that got me there, mm-hmm. Um but he said, you know, you got to get out. And I can remember standing in the kitchen and I just collapsed in his arms and I was like, I can't do this. I'm so tired. I'm so beaten down. And he's like, are you done? Like, are are you done? And I said, yeah. And so that is where my recovery story started right there in um, 2014.
0: That is awesome. Yes. I know a few people who have met people in rehab and- yeah. Some people are super successful. Some people mm-hmm. it's a really bad codependency situation where they haven't gotten over that part yet. So they haven't been able to realize how to cope on their own. So they're still like depending oh, on yeah. someone else. So now when you had like, so he stayed sober when you had the drugs in the house, when you had oh, all that, he was staying clean. I tell him congratulations for me. Cause I, that's a big, a big deal, a big, yeah. big deal. But coming from somebody who served time as well, but in the side, you don't understand how much more accessible it is inside a jail. Like, mm-hmm. I could have done anything, anytime. Like, when I was doing my outtake interview, I was like, you know, and she asked me if I was still sober. And I, I was like, wait, what? What do you mean? Like, you <laughs> like you can't right. get any of that here. Like, yeah. she's like, no, you'd be surprised. She goes, and I almost wanted to not count the time I was in there. And she was like, you need to 100% count that time. Absolutely. Like, that is 100% your time. So now what happens now as far as he's clean and you're like getting to the point. So you're at this point, it's no more rehabs. You're like, you know what? These aren't working for me. I'm not, fuck this. Like I'm not doing that. So now you basically, does he help you along with that journey? Or do you kind of go by yourself and figure out, okay, you know what? These are the things I have to do. Did you like, you were, you had to detox from all the drugs you were doing. So what was that like?
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, it was like, I think the last day that I smoked dope was January 31st, For some odd reason, that sticks out in my mind. Um, now, with any sort of uppers, things like that, it takes about three days for you to detox. And while that's happening, you know, it's, you can experience hallucinations, more than likely you're tired because you haven't slept, you're dehydrated, um, and you're just trying to like get back. So thank God, because... of the people I talk to and hear from, you know, with the opiates and the benzos, like that sort of detox is insane. And like, oh, so, um, he said, you know, you've, you've got to do something different. And it, it was just that moment. It was that moment of clarity that we hear about so often that I, um, I involved, I enrolled in outpatient treatment and it was with women and so that mm-hmm. started it that was several times a week they drug tested me and so um, like a
0: um an IOP type of situation yes yep yep
1: because I wasn't again I've done rehab I don't need to do yep. that and my husband told me he's like you need to go to rehab and I'm like no you know especially yeah. we didn't have the money at the time and
0: no it insurance. didn't work for you <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. there was a disconnect for you for that stuff like yeah. yeah you made and the right move on that one
1: be real. Like, You go into treatment and to rehabs and they they get you clean, right? They give you a a warm bed, hot meals, and they have you busy all day long with meetings. But what really is the meat and potatoes of recovery is, you know, meetings, if you so choose to do that, but doing something different and having that sort of lifestyle that it teaches us to do something different. So it's like changing, you know, who we play with, where we play, our play toys, our play things, all, all of it. Um, And So my sobriety date is 2-8-14, and on the 7th of February, I can remember me and my husband, I had some Percocets or something in my drawer and we had started arguing. So I took a Percocet to go to sleep and so I had to start my clean day over. And so that's when 2-8-14 comes around. Um, I enrolled myself in school, um, so I did medical assisting and It was fantastic. I started working for the school, I got straight A's and that is where I got into the medical field. I started working for a foot and ankle surgeon and I I loved it. Like it gave me a purpose that I'd never had before. Now mind you, I was still working with people and still in that sort of like customer service face-to-face but still taking care. And it like fueled this fire for me. Yeah, and then I found out that I was pregnant with my son. And so I was about a year and a half clean and sober at that time. And I'll never forget this. Um, I had a sponsor and I told her and she was like, you, are you going to keep the baby? And I said, absolutely. And she's like, I don't think you should. And at that point I was like, what? Because I was, I was still a train wreck, you know, still trying to like learn how to do life and get rid of, the things that caused me to drink and use. And, and so she's like, I don't think you can take care of a baby. And at that point, my, like, I was like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, 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 that's when I I stopped working with her and I said, I'm going to do this. Like uh, I'm having this baby. And uh, my son was born seven, seven, 15. And it was, it was magical. And I've been sober ever since. And I've welcomed another little girl in, but yeah. My kids, thank God, have never seen me or my husband loaded.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Now, um, did you do NA and AA? Did you just do one or the other? How when you had that sponsor? What was that like? Which one did you do?
1: Yeah, so um I tried NA and it here in Portland <laughs> I don't know if it's different anywhere else, but it was like a meat market, you know. You, uh, the people weren't really in the recovery, like trying to get healthy. It was almost like the same stuff, like people being dry, you know, like still have their, the yucky things inside of them. And, you know, people were trying to holler at you and just like date you and get in your pants and stuff like that. And so that's when my husband, he was like, this is why I do AA is because the re- the recovery is solid in there. And mm-hmm. so that's when I started working AA and, um, I, I still do it. I still do it. And I have a sponsor, you know, but it, um it just depends. Like I've really been working and learning about the different kinds of recovery and how people like my thought process has changed so much on this because I'm like, there's not just, it's not just one size fits all, you know, we've all mm-hmm. got so much trauma and background and, and It's like pieces to a puzzle, right? And so what works for one person might not work for another. And I just don't give a shit at this time. Like whatever Mm. works for you and keeps you clean and sober and that person that you need and you want to be, do that.
0: So for you, did you work through all the steps and finish all the step work and then able to move on? And as far as that, do you feel like you did do the emotional recovery part and you got to work through any demons that you had or anything that you were trying to escape during that time with you using?
1: Absolutely, yeah. It, it, you know, in the in the AA program, it's they call it a four-step, like your deep house cleaning, right? So they say um, we got to do a house cleaning and no stone left unturned or whatever it is. And I did that because I didn't know anything different, and I was so, I was so broken down that I was honestly willing to do whatever it took because I was either gonna continue to live the way that I was and and just the chaos and the craziness or I was going to do something different. And I was, I was broken down enough to listen and thank God, because it worked. I still do the steps. I do them maybe like once a year. Um, you know, my sponsor relationship that we have is very chill and we kind of just, I check in as needed and things like that. So
0: that's really good. That's really good. I find that for me, it's just, I feel like, my, which is, <laughs> it's why I started to speak out because <laughs>
1: it's just like a,
0: no, I've not met anybody that has my same story and wow. it was done. So I feel like unconventionally at the time and I didn't have another way. And in that time, like I didn't know what a podcast was. Mm-hmm. I, all I knew was I was coming home. I didn't crave it. I didn't want it. And I knew I was on parole for like 28 days and I knew I just, I couldn't use it. Like, he could have came and tested me any time. Then I was on probation for two years. If I did anything, I would have went back to jail for a year and a half. I was like, there's no fucking way I'm doing that again. Like, I literally... And I don't know if for that time it kept me to the point where I mentally was so checked out of it that I was able to work through. Like, because my emotional recovery took a long time. So, Mm. I did... So, I opted with doing therapy because I just didn't vibe with the meetings. And I personally... I'm so grateful I did it like that. And it's funny because I didn't talk about my addiction in therapy. I talked (gasps) about the things that led me there and where I was and what I needed to. I went in there going, okay, I know I need to heal this, 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 and this. And I need your help doing that because I don't know how to do it by myself. And so in the emotional recovery, a lot of people, and I know you're in, you're on Instagram and people message us all the time and want to know, what did you do? What can I do here? And I get a lot of people wanting to get sober, but like, they just can't keep it. And like you said, Mm -hmm. you need to do something different. What you're doing is not working. Like you're not, you're, you're the same things happening. You're going through the same pattern. You need to change something, whether that's who knows what it is. And I told a friend of mine, she has an issue and she like stops and starts stops and starts. And I told her yesterday, I said, it could be one thing that you're doing that could be like a switch for you. Yeah. You know? And So now how do you guys go through like he was sober for a long time, stayed in that sobriety and you're in the beginning stages where you're like pink cloud, you're, you're, you know, basically you're in this like new sobriety thing and you need to learn how to do so many things by yourself, but you're also with a partner. Mm -hmm. How do you got, how did you guys navigate that?
1: The pink cloud drives, like my, my. (laughs) ride that for as long as you can right wear (laughs) those rose colored glasses ride it because it's amazing (laughs) like my pink cloud moment is where I walked outside and I looked at the grass right and normally you know I have glasses obviously I'm blind as a bat but Normally you look at grass and it's just green laid down. I could see individual blades of grass. And I was like, yes. what? Like those little things. I was like, how, where have I been? You know, mm-hmm. the little things. But um, I just threw myself into, I really admired him. I did. I was like, he's doing something. And so I just, I just started to follow suit, you know? And I, I, we went to the same meetings and then we found different meetings and we did stuff like that. Um, but it's really about just having a healthy relationship and, and relationships can be so detrimental in recovery to any sort of alcoholic or addicts because it's the person closest to us that can just set us off if we're not emotionally mm-hmm. and spiritually, if you will, you know, take it or leave it if you want, I don't, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but if, if we're off, right, it just, it can light that fire again. And I kid you not, like my husband is one of the most calm, understanding, loving people I've ever met in my life versus me. And I'm like a raw nerve, ready to snap, like <laughs> fire, spicy. And so we yeah. kind of mellow each other out. But um, it was just kind of like growing up really, because as you know, when we start drinking and using our mindset completely shuts off. And we're living oh. on like primal instincts at that mm-hmm. point. You know, like, do I shower? Meh, that's not important. <laughs> yeah, you know, do oh, I yeah. eat? Mm-mm, mm-mm, yep. Not important. <laughs> so, yeah, it was like it was like growing up together at that point.
0: It and it also sounds like because of the where you went and you sought your help so much through those meetings. You didn't depend on him, which I, that brings me a lot of joy because mm-hmm. a lot of people, when they're in a relationship, they will put so much on that other person oh, and yeah. that relationship won't last
1: because yeah, that person is going to get
0: tired. And I just, I admire how you both were able to go like, okay, we're going to go to this meeting and we're going to do this together. But like, we have our own journeys and we need to do our own thing. And then, you know, you were able to go off to your own way and like, you still have a sponsor. So if you're, if you're having an issue, you're not going to go to him and put all of this pressure on him. Like, oh, hey xyz and he's going to be like oh my god what oh my god you oh, go to the me. other person oh, yeah you're going to an outside source which i think is so healthy and you're going to this outside source and going okay this is how i'm feeling right mm-hmm. now like okay and she's going to talk you she or he is going to talk you through it and figure out what's going on and you're able to do this in such a healthy way which probably makes your relationship so much healthier
1: it is good. Yeah. Yeah. Now you said something earlier about, you know, outside help therapy and I am a huge advocate for that because that is a major part of my, my journey. Um, you know, for years I would take depression medication, but I was also drinking and getting loaded at the time. So yeah. no wonder it didn't work like, Oh, why isn't it working? <laughs> yeah. you know? But, um, it, the longer that I stayed sober, and this is kind of like the skewed thing in AA and recovery if you will. Like you do not it's the the abstinence, the total abstinence. And even even mental health meds, depression medication, mood stabilizers, whatever it is, ADHD meds, like those are frowned upon in my experience. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. you know, I I realized that I there was something in my brain, you know, and I need a depression medication and I still take it because it just keeps me where I need to be. I don't have the high ups and the low lows. So I'm a, I'm a very big fan of therapy. And sometimes let's be real. Like you don't want to talk to a sponsor about the stuff that Mm. happened to you when you were a child, you don't want to talk. They don't, they're not trained, right? they are people with past experiences that has like, yes, I've worked the steps, let's do this. But they are not trained in Mm -hmm. mental health and psychological health, whatever it is to really help and provide that necessary treatment, if you will.
0: And they say that sometimes how a person reacts to you is something that they have going on in themselves. And that Mm -hmm. that's why they're, you know, saying that to you or lashing out at you like that, or thinking about you in that way. And if that's going to help you get through the day, I have major anxiety and I used to be on medication a long time ago. I personally decided not to take it. And it's, I don't think anything of it with depression. You, a lot of people need medication. Yeah, Like you need that. If you have bipolar, like you need medication that you need medication for, there is no way around it. You and, you know, I think being careful of the narcotics, 100 percent, like I don't take anything that even and I didn't have anything. I only was alcohol. Like I've never taken drugs. I barely even take, you know, Tylenol. So and I've been like that my whole life. So for me, I think it's if it's going to help you be calmer, if it's going to help you be able to stabilize yourself stabilize, and balance yeah. yourself. That's good. And do I think that. a lot of people ne- do more of that. <laughs> yeah. you know? And there's natural ways for people to do that, but not everybody has the kind of patience you need for that. People are like, you know, meditate, I meditate. It's extremely difficult for me to meditate because yeah. I am a overthinker. And it is Same. so hard for me to like sit there and be like, "Okay, I'm going to do this," but I do it and it's great. And that's just how I do it. So mm. it just it just depends on, you know, your person, but I don't really think that people should take like Such a defense on that. You know. Like even with the Cali sober stuff. Like that's that person's thing. That's their decision. And hopefully they learned how to do that in a special way. And like they're they you know took. Like they know knowledge to do this in a helpful way. So it's not damaging to them. But otherwise like it's not your story. It's not your problem. It's the let's not judge everybody. Let's just accept people for what they're doing. And they're staying sober. That's all that matters. Whatever is keeping you this way. Do more of it. And figure out what's going on. And for me, and I don't know if it's the same for you, So, like my, you know, healing my trauma and going to therapy, yeah. I say, I'm probably going to be in therapy forever and I'm going to be healing my trauma forever. And I'm going to be on my journey forever with sobriety as well. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not like one day happens and it's like, oh, it's a switch and I, uh, you know, I'm this, I'm a perfect sober human being. Like, all right, I'm good now. It doesn't work like that. You know, well, so, and
1: have you noticed that the longer that you stay sober, the more stuff that comes up that you're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even realize that was a thing. And now here it is. It's like, here's something yeah. for you to work on. Right. That so happened to me. Like, ugh.
0: so one thing I worked on in the beginning of therapy was. So my mom left when I was like 10. I helped my dad raise my brothers. So I didn't get a lot of attention as a child at all. Like no one was telling me they loved me. No one, like I didn't get a lot of that. So I'm really good about reaching out to people to a point where I'm flawed with it. So I will reach out and reach out and reach out. And it's called reaching. And I, and no one's reciprocating. And then I get really upset because no one's reciprocating. And then it's like triggering me and everything like that. So one thing my therapist has me work on, it's like, you know, basically whatever relationship is not this balance, I'm really, I'm not supposed to keep this relationship. I'm supposed to move forward. And I was doing really good for a while with it and everybody was good. And lately I've been noticing, like last night I was like, I said to my husband, I'm like, why? Like, it's happening again. Like, this is how is this happening again? Like, I was like, oh, I fixed this. I'm good. Like, oh, I set this boundary. Well, someone is going to press that boundary and going to try to move further, and you're going to have to go, okay, I need this. And one thing in my sobriety, the way that I kind of like deal is I need time to process. I'm a processor. I need, sometimes it takes me days, weeks. I will disconnect. I will do whatever. And I need that time. And sometimes I need to do that. Sometimes I need to remember like, okay, this is what's happening. Sometimes I have flashbacks, which are horrible yes, and yes. like, and it's random, like can happen anytime. And it's like, that brings me to like, You get, you feel, the way you feel is not good. Like, it's not a good feeling. But you have to be like, okay, what do I do? I need to move forward. And this is what happens. And, you know, thankfully, I am not in a place where cravings are a thing for me, which I'm very, I'm very grateful of that. But that doesn't mean that things don't bother me and I don't think about it. But as soon as I think about it, like, if I think about alcohol, I will, a flashback will happen and I will remember like, nope, can't do that. Nope, this is not, I can't do that. You know, yeah. and I'll be sitting here like, you know what, I really wish I could be normal. That's my thought. I, why can't I be normal? Why can't I go to a wedding and have a glass of wine and just have a glass of wine? And then I need to remember, nope, I can't do that. Yep. Because I have a disease. I can't do that. I can't keep going on this cycle. And I've never tried nothing. So it's it's, you got to kind of like, as, as much as they say the pink cloud, you got to kind of like ride it where the wave takes you. Sometimes the wave is going to be nice and steady. And sometimes you're going to have, it's going to be, you're going to crash. You're going to go underwater your water and you're going to have to figure out, okay, what are the steps that I need to get myself out? Because alcohol is going to do literally nothing but ruin my life. Cause that's what it did to me. So yeah. I need to, we need to go the other way. <laughs> we need to figure it out. And my husband is sober as well. And we met while we were both sober. So completely different situation. And Um, He hadn't planned to stop forever, and then when he met me, he was like, oh, like, he learned so much more about sobriety because I'd been through so much, so, and I was really worried he would start drinking again. Like, that was a very big fear of mine, so we communicated about it, and he had told me, you know, that's not something that will ever happen, like, I'm, I'm sober for life, like, this is where we're at, and we moved on from it, but you... I can't be codependent on him. I've never gone to him and told him like, okay, I have a craving. Okay. This is what's going on. Okay. I'm having a really hard time with this. Or I will say, okay, I need some space today and it has nothing to do with you. And I love you. And we'll talk when you get home. And in the beginning it was hard because he thought he was like, I did something. What did I do to you? Like, I'm so sorry. And I had to take that away from him and be like, this is not yours. It's mine. And just give me this space. And that's how we deal with it. Because if I got to a point where I was codependent and was like, no, you need to keep me sober, that is not healthy and you cannot sustain a relationship that way.
1: Well, look at how much pressure that is on him though yeah. to keep you sober. Like, no, we, <laughs> can't, crazy. Yeah. You know, we can't get anyone drunk and we can't keep anyone sober. And that's like, it's just too much. You know, we have enough going on on the inside. Yeah, yeah. and what I love is, you know, you just mentioned like, Finding different ways. Like you know where you came from. I know where I came from. And it is scary as all ever. Like it it scared me to goodness gracious. And now we have learned. So if I pick up any sort of drink or drug, this is gonna happen. It might not happen right away, but it's going to. So now I need to navigate and find other healthy, healthy ways to cope and to maintain and to figure out because. When we break it down, when we are consuming any sort of mind-altering substance, cigarettes, even food, sex, whatever yeah. it is, yeah. it fires off those dopamine receptors that it's like it's that pleasure-seeking in our brain. And it takes us out of what we're feeling, and it takes us somewhere else where we don't have to think about it because you and I are over Yeah. So it's like, here we go. We have to feel things now. Yeah. Who wants to feel things? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. <laughs>
0: yeah and it's like the same thing like where we were we were using to I was using to stop my mind
1: uh-huh
0: well that's what I was I didn't want to nope um and I was so happy until I got depressed <laughs> So you know and it was great that
1: invisible line <laughs>
0: <laughs> now I want to talk about a little bit about your social media presence I literally adore you on social media I love what you bring and how you bring like just such a a laughter and hilarious aspect to everything you do. Thank you. Explain to us how you decided to speak your truth and speak out, and where that's gotten you now, and where what you do with social media and how you use that to your advantage.
1: Oh, th- that's really kind. Thank you. Um, you know, I started speaking about out about sobriety several years ago, and it was on Facebook, and I just randomly, and the amount of messages and things that I would get all the time and people asking for like help. And it was just kind of like a safe place that people, you know, when I put myself out there being vulnerable enough to, cause let's be real, people can be really freaking mean and have those, those um, ideals of what alcoholism or addiction is or isn't. So when I started putting my story out there, that's when I realized like there's something here there is. I loved that connection with people, you know, and making those sort of relationships. So I did a program with a woman who's my mentor. And she's like, you just like, there's something not aligned. Like, she's like, what can you talk about for hours? And I'm like, sobriety. And she's like, do that, do that. And so that's what the, the whole, everything switched for me is I'm like, this I can talk about because I'm passionate about it. Cause it has changed my life. It has changed like, people like you, like, Mm -hmm. we see the difference, and so, again, like, I try to, I try to be relatable as possible to where it's, like, oh, my gosh, yep, that was me, you know, I blackout drank last night, I don't remember what I did, or where my pants are, who I slept with, you know, and again, you and I are at that place in our sobriety and our recovery to where we can laugh about it, but Mm -hmm. maybe there's someone who just started, and who was, like, I'm absolutely miserable right now so it gives them kind of like okay you know a lightness to it and so it's it's finding humor and finding um a way to talk about dark things because it is it's dark Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that is what i try to do um and i um i have recently started i got my recovery coach level one done i just passed that yesterday so
0: Congratulations. That's a huge, huge milestone.
1: Thank you. Um, It's been, it's so interesting to me, you know, the different ways to recover and I'm just, I'm, it's my life right now. I'm learning about it. So hopefully I can help other people because what works for one isn't going to work for another. So let's Mm -hmm. find something. Um, But that is just, that's what I'm doing. You know, I try to help people. Here's what I've noticed, that sometimes when you're in that mind, mind space and it's like, mom, mommy juice, the mommy wine culture and stuff like that, yeah. that is so freaking toxic.
0: So toxic.
1: And it's like, mommy drinks wine because of you. No, mommy drinks because she doesn't know how to handle the shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And she's stressed out. Mommy needs a break. Plain and simple. So that's where this is going, hopefully. And we can just yeah. bring awareness.
0: That's awesome. I love that. For anybody, she is at sober.abundance on Instagram and her content is amazing. Mm-hmm. I I love you. following you and it's just, it's awesome. Now to the last thing I want to ask you is what would you say to somebody who's listening who is struggling with staying sober or they're kind of in the midst where they're like, I might have a problem. Like what would you suggest to them?
1: Yeah. So the person that might have a problem is if you don't have a problem you're not thinking about if you do there is that line i love using the invisible line because it's it's clear and it's in the sand but you can't see it but once we cross it into do i have a problem because normal drinkers normal pot smokers whatever it is they don't think they don't have to question if they have a problem because they're not seeing negative consequences so if you're thinking about do i have a problem um i suggest doing a pros and a cons list like what is working for you? What does alcohol bring you that is helping you? What is it doing negatively for you? You know, is it making it so you're not present as a mom, you're not able to, um, you know, cook dinner or take your kids to bed or put your kids in a bath or you're snappy, you're irritated, those types of things. And it's something magical happens when we get to see it plain out and the thoughts just aren't swirling around in our heads because we like to rationalize and kind of make excuses for why we do the things we do so when we can think about i'm really experiencing some negative consequences that is where the magic happens and for someone that you know is early in sobriety again like i feel that when you hear the term alcoholic you you automatically think of alcoholics anonymous you know and it's this like cult type thing great if it is If it works for you, do that again, you know, but just because if something doesn't work or you had a bad experience with it, try something else, like keep trying, keep Mm -hmm. going because life is so much better when we can really get in tune with ourselves and find out what makes us tick. Like early in sobriety, I realized that I I like to knit. Number one is because I couldn't sit still. (laughs) And number two is because I needed something to do with my hands. It's like finding out like, oh, wow, I really have a passion for art or for music. And these things fall to the wayside when we're drinking and using. So it's just, it's freaking magical. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. in the community, because you cannot, I'm sorry, but doing it on your own, you have a great success story of doing it on your own, but you've got people around you now. You have a community around you and you're not left alone to your own devices. So sharing speaking about it letting someone else know and holding yourself accountable